The Akkad and Coca Report, episode number 99. Welcome to the Akkad and Coca Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare. From policy to economics, from evidence based medicine to ethics, join us as Drs. Michelle Akkad and Anish Coca diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in. I'm Michelle Akkad. Our guest today is David Balat, who recently wrote a piece for The Hill with a very provocative title and content. So I thought we'd have him on and get his perspective on what's going on at uh, the global level, or at least in Washington, D.C., and what are the trends that seem to be shaping healthcare. I think you'll find the conversation very interesting. David is currently the director of the Right on Healthcare Initiative uh, at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And in the course of the conversation, we'll have a chance to learn more about him and his background. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you that if you enjoy the podcast, you can help support it with a review on iTunes or with a donation at accountandcoca.com slash support. A small contribution can give you access to our private online forum, and you can also receive a free copy of my book, Moving Mountains, a Socratic Challenge to the Theory and Practice of Population Medicine. And now to our conversation with David Balat. David, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. I want to jump into the, um, uh, the meat of uh, the discussion, if you will, uh, from the get-go. I was struck by this article that uh, I read um, that you wrote recently. Uh, I think it was published in, in The Hill. And the, the title of it, uh, I thought was great. Um, the title is Uninsh- uh, Uninsured by Circumstance or by Choice? Question mark. And you draw attention to the fact that there are many people for whom health insurance is not the panacea that many of the health policy guys, you know, assume that it is. And you're a health policy guy. So uh, go ahead and tell us a little bit what you're, what you're trying to talk about in, that, um, in this article. Well, what I'm trying to convey is that we've become too health insurance centric in this industry. And that's not how it started. Healthcare is the relationship between doctor and patient. And the reason it's become so expensive and so inefficient is because there are too many middlemen that have come between that relationship. Insurance is one of them. Government is certainly the other. Uh, pharma, uh, pharmacy benefit managers, you name it. There's, there are so many people that have injected themselves because they've seen the almighty dollar. And they're willing to, uh, to, draw, uh, to create a wedge between uh, a healer and, and those who are seeking to be healed. Right. You know, you start the... the um... Um, uh, your article in a sort of uh, provocative way. I'm going to read the the first sentence. It starts like this. I often tell people that I'm among the statistics of the uninsured. I'm not covered under traditional health benefits, nor is my family. We use other other forms of coverage that provide us with a peace of mind and access to affordable care that we desire. Um, That must be mind-boggling for most people in... uh, in DC, and so you wrote this in the Hill. Uh, tell us a little bit about what um, uh, what you do, and 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 um, and and how you came to um, uh, to understand that. Uh, give us a little bit about your background. You know, we've talked about health insurance, and and the you know the 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 detriments of it uh, over the course of many episodes here. But I, I like to to explore the personal angle of how people, uh, you know, get to understand this. Well, let me tell you about my personal situation, uh, how my family is covered. And I'm, I'm very comfortable sharing what we have and how much I pay for it. Uh, I even, 
got, I was invited to testify before Congress and I shared this information as well and told them that I also am uninsured statistically. So, uh, and I just like to say that because I want them to know that there are other options, there are other forms of coverage that are not necessarily insurance. Uh, as I said, the most important aspect of healthcare is that relationship with doctors. So uh, for that reason, I have a direct primary care physician mm-hmm. for myself and for my whole family. And what I do uh, in addition to that, because I'm, I'm, most of our needs are cared for at that point. Uh, in addition to that, we have uh, coverage that is uh, essentially catastrophic, but it's a medical cost sharing, very similar to the Christian sharing ministries. And I have a $1,500 deductible should I need to be hospitalized or need surgery or if there's cancer, God forbid. Um, and uh, that, that's it. And, and I pay a premium on a monthly basis for all four members of my family, my wife and two, two children, uh, about $474 a month. Right. That's terrific. You know, so we have the same thing. We, we had on the show, and I'll put a link um, in the show notes to that episode, we had... Um, one of the founders of of, uh, of a, a cost sharing ministry uh, on to explain a little bit how that how that works. But it's essentially it's a pool of people who trust one another and get together and put together a little bit of money every month um, in in a, in a pool that covers people's expenses, medical expenses during that period of time. And it's not health insurance because there's no contractual. Um, Entitlement that you know you'll get you know anything that you want covered and so forth. I mean there are some stipulation, but the idea is that everybody's going to be responsible and and uh, and really try to to ration their own care. But if they have a need, then there's a community of people who will step in and. Um, and, 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 if, and, and if I may there, you know people will, will always say, well, David, there's no guarantee of payment. It's not insurance. Uh, it's unsafe. And what I'll tell them is, you know, how often does your insurance company deny the hospital or the physician? And in fact, if you look at uh, the Kaiser Family Foundation uh, indicated on a national basis, the average percentage of denials of, uh, of claims in the ACA, in the exchange, was about a quarter of, of all claims, 25%. And in Texas alone, it was closer to 30 Right. Yeah, it's where's, amazing. What's the guarantee there? Correct. Uh, there's no guarantee. And then there's another, um, there's an attitude that when I tell people that that's what I have, or I, I mentioned this, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the people who are, you know, uh, skeptical of this or are so enamored with uh, government-sponsored health insurance and so forth, they, they will... Uh, they, they almost make a slur that they, they assume that they say, well, if you get sick, you know, that, you know, the, you know, uh, the government will pick up the tab, you know, that sort of thing, you know, it's sort of a, an assumption that, that, uh, that uh, at the end of the day, you, you're going to, uh, you're going to be a leech on the system, right? When in fact, you're doing everything you can to not cost anything to the community and to be as responsible as possible. That's right. Well, so, you know, that's, so it's, those- it's, Right, of, of single-payer government-sponsored uh, insurance, people will say, "Well, everybody will have access." Absolutely, yes, but you may never, you might not live long enough to get to the access because of the rationing of care and the limitation of, of the supply of physicians and facilities. When it becomes free, <laughs> right. then uh, 
you, you, rationing is an inevitability. Right. So uh, you're trying to um, uh, spread the gospel, so to speak, to tell people that, you know, health insurance or, you know, there's a conflation. And you, you talked about that in your testimony to Congress, that there's a conflation between healthcare and health insurance. And people will yes. use the term interchangeably. They'll say, oh, I've lost my health care. When in fact, you know, they may have lost, you know, you know uh, a sham of, of, uh, of a health insurance policy. Yeah. Um, what, um, uh, what is your role? Uh, you're part of a, um, a public policy uh, foundation. And, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm the national director for an initiative called Ride on Healthcare with the Texas Public Policy Foundation. That's the largest uh, center-right uh, think tank outside of Washington, D.C. And uh, I, I, it's, although it's a Texas-based uh, think tank, I, I do work with uh, lawmakers in Texas, but I work in Washington, D.C. quite a bit as well. Okay. So it's not, you're not focused on uh, state, ba state policy only, or you might be, but you're... you're no, um, no. It, it's uh, national, state of Texas, and I also assist with a few other states. Okay. And what's um, what's the mission here for uh, organizations like you? It's really is it to to change minds, to change minds of lawmakers, to change minds, you know, the public's minds, or how how does that proceed? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, it, our job is to to develop uh, research so that we can educate and influence lawmakers and the general public. Okay. Tell us how how that happens on on the hill. You go to Washington D.C. You you uh, press the flesh with the senators and and you tell them you give them an elevator pitch and they're convinced. <laughs> you know, it, it takes some time for them to be able to trust you because they hear so many things from so many people, uh, and it's it's a challenge. And and really, it depends on what part of the country they're from and who their constituents are. Because if they have a a GPO or a PBM in their district, you're not going to be able to really have a discussion with them about. Uh, you know, eliminating a safe harbor or, or mitigating the expense of medications and things like that. Uh, but for the most part, I think that they appreciate my perspective because I come from the healthcare industry. I'm, I'm not a, a policy person. It's not uh, the world that I've grown up in. I'm rather new to it, uh, to be quite honest. I, uh, I, I miss being in the hospital, uh, honestly. I miss being around physicians and patients. But uh, I'm thankful to be where I am because I, I can be more a part of the solution than I was back in the industry that I love. Tell us about your background. What, what did you do before you took on this position? I was a hospital executive and, and CEO for a number of hospitals. Uh, the last seven years of my career, I was a turnaround specialist. I would go to hospitals that were financially distressed and on the verge of bankruptcy. And uh, we'd get them healthy again. Okay. But uh, to do that, you do that by... Um, um, by improving uh, health insurance payer mix and, and that sort of thing? Or, or what's, what's, what's the, I, I, uh, the secret sauce? No, I, you know, I didn't focus on insurance. I, you know, my first priority, and people would typically don't believe me when I say this, but my first priority was patient safety. Because if you don't have a safe hospital, you're not going to get the physicians to come so that they can bring their patients and so on and so forth. So in order to be profitable, you need to have a safe environment. Uh, the second thing that I did was... Uh, I partnered with physicians. I was told, I was taught very early on, one of my mentors was a urologist when I was a young administrator. And he said, David, nothing happens in a hospital except for at the tip of a doctor's pen. 
As an administrator, I can't admit patients. All I can do is build buildings, buy equipment, and hire staff to take care or to support the physicians and to take care of the patients. When you understand the role in its, in its proper, uh, in its proper uh, place, then it's much easier. I think most of uh, my ilk, uh, you may believe it, you may not, uh, they don't really tend to like doctors, <laughs> hospital administrators. Yeah, there's uh, clearly not a, not a love relationship between, you know, I mean, uh, between both groups, uh, doctors and hospital administrators. Uh, keep talking because it's that's a, that's an interesting perspective. Um, so you're trying to make the hospital safer, which I would imagine was would be appreciated by the physicians in general. Um, is that and, and then and then that would translate, you think, into uh, um, a public perception that the hospital was getting better and and cleaning up its. Uh, well, that was that's only exactly. a piece of it. Okay. So, so you want to take care of uh, you want to take care of the safety from from an environmental uh, perspective. You want to have good staff. Uh, you know the way that you're going to make money in, in a hospital is that you're going to you're going to have surgeries. You're going to have your surgical procedures, and one of the most important specialties you can have in your facility is your anesthesia. Having having a a, a professional there that other doctors trust. Uh, to to take care of their patients and that uh, there's not that concern when they put their their patients under the knife uh, and then going to the doctors and saying look uh, when do you want to have when do you want to have OR time and what if I can you know get you to to have uh, you know six procedures instead of three or you know if it's ophthalmology if you want to have 15 instead of 12 that translates into more money for them and I understand the economics of that so we could turn it will, we, we, um, were really, um, it was a priority for me to make sure that rooms were, t were turned around and that we were focused on meeting the needs of the physician. It wasn't necessarily meeting the needs of the hospital. We were there to serve the people that needed to take, be taken care of and who were they taking care of? They were taken care of by the physicians. The, um, what, um, you know our perception, and and we're not in the business of running. You know, so so there's a lot of you know there may be a lot of misperceptions about how hospital are, hospitals are run. You know whether they have a, a very cushy bottom line or not. Uh, you know because we, we don't know we're in the dark. Mm -hmm. um, the importance of of having a lot of uh, uh, you know nice you know i mean a lot of private uh, you know patients with a lot of private insurance as opposed to relying on medicare medicaid were you in situations where at the end of the, at the end of the day you were so constrained constrained by all by the payer mix by the demographics by the regulatory impositions by the fact that you're you know you couldn't capture revenue because the you know the electronic health record perhaps was not up to snuff and all that stuff that you know it was just you know, the, the, it was terminally, terminally distressed, and then the option is to merge with a bigger system and, and bigger, bigger means. Because we tend to see that quite a bit, right? I mean, hospitals yeah. that are distressed, and then they get gobbled up by, by the, bigger, uh, the bigger fishes. Yeah. Well, my job wasn't to merge them with a bigger fish. That's, that's, that's lazy uh, from my perspective. I, I was hired to do a job, and my job was to get the hospital profitable. 
uh, I my goal was to make it profitable on Medicare and Medicaid. And if we could do that, the rest of the, the private insurance was gravy. And we were able to do that. I had a very, uh, I had a pretty good uh, success rate. Okay. And I'm very proud of what I was able to achieve because again, I, I partnered with the doctors and I considered them to be friends. Uh, and, and that's where your business comes from. Um, but as far as, um, I'm trying to recall the rest of your question then. No, I mean, I'm saying, you know, we, uh, what did you think of the story that developed in Philadelphia in, in uh, Anisha's neck of the woods about this uh, hospital, Hanuman? Mm-hmm. And uh, is it a matter, I mean, do you think that uh, it's, you know, these can be mismanaged and, and it's always possible to salvage, even at Medicare, Medicaid rates? Yes. To salvage a hospital? Oh, without question. I think many hospitals suffer from administrative bloat. And it's important for a lot of these guys to have nice offices and, and lots of staff that support them, but it's absolutely not necessary. Uh, one thing that uh, was a trademark of how I operated was uh, I subscribed to a management pr- principle um, uh, that I learned in graduate school. Uh, it was referred to as MBWA, management by around. Management by what? I'm sorry. I... Ma- management by walking around. Okay, right. So I didn't spend a lot of time in an office. I, I spent my time with, with the staff. Uh, I spent my time in the OR. I would, I, would, uh, I would scrub up and stand next to my surgeons, and I would go into the ER, and I would go into the patient floors, and I'd hold patients' hands. Uh, that's what you need to, to do as an administrator, because how else will you know uh, what the needs of, of your patients are, what the needs of your customers, who, in my, my, from my perspective, that was my doctor's. Uh, how would you know what their needs are? And so I wasn't going to um, uh, rely on on my direct reports, although I took their uh, their recommendations. But people uh, tend to embellish or hoard, and you know, I needed to see things with my own eyes. Um, and what? Um, so so you go from from uh, uh, hospital administration to to health policy. You felt that was a necessary next step. I mean, why was it? Was the uh, did you see clouds on the horizon that you know you you uh, there was something that compelled you to get into to go into the health policy front? There was a there was a step before that was okay. In the middle. <laughs> All right. I, I was uh, I was very frustrated uh, by by hearing our politicians say uh, you're going to lose your health care. You're going to you know, this this is going to happen to health care when clearly. They weren't talking about healthcare. They were talking about health insurance, uh, and the amount of regulations in in our industry was is, it, it is just astronomical. It actually exceeds that of the IRS tax code. Uh, so, out of frustration, I ran for U.S. Congress in uh, in Houston. Oh, okay. And, and uh, I uh, thankfully uh, did not get past the primary, and uh, I. I I was I was actually offered a position. I had uh, the opportunity to go back into the hospitals, which, again, I, I love the hospitals. I, I'm one of those weird people that I, even likes the smell. But uh, I had spent the prior year telling people how how healthcare was just so fundamentally broken, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of internal conflict uh, for me to be able to go back and be a part of of what I considered to be a problem. And so I didn't have any options or solutions. I just knew that uh, I had a message and, and I wanted to continue sharing it. So that um, my very understanding wife uh, allowed me to continue campaigning for healthcare reform. And I did that on my own dime for the remainder of the year. During that time, I became the healthcare advisor for a few congressmen. Uh, 
a few state representatives in Texas. And it was, uh, it was a good situation, but word got around uh, to my current employer and, and uh, they, okay. they, they liked what I was doing and they, they uh, brought me on board. What was your uh, intellectual journey in, in terms of how you understood? Because there are many people who are, who are in healthcare who evidently don't see it the way you and I see it necessarily, right? I mean, there are people who are just veterans of, of the healthcare system right. who, who still, you know, hope for, you know, the, the big, uh, you know, solution to come from, from Washington or, uh, you know, the, the big subsidies and whatnot and, and who are resigned to, to having everything handed down to them. What was it for you that made you see things in a different way? It might be that, uh, well, for me, it's always been about patient care, as I said before. And when you have your focus on the patient, you start to recognize and realize that all of these other things are, are they're superfluous. Uh, there is a little bit of value, but not the kind of value that they put on, they put on it. So my experience working, I, and, and I, I, before uh, being in, on the administrative side, I worked my way through college in, in an ER as an orderly when that was such a job. But um, it, it's just been very frustrating. I've also done consulting work with other countries. I've been to Antigua, I've been to, uh, done some work in Canada, and I've uh, done some mission work in uh, Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I, that I saw consistently is that the more that government is in control, uh, the less people have. And I'll give you an example of, of what happened to me in Costa Rica. The, the pastor's wife with whom we were staying uh, was just diagnosed with, with cervical cancer. And she had went, gone in for another visit. She wasn't feeling well. And it was an advanced cancer. And they said, uh, yes, we're going to schedule you for surgery, but we need to have an ultrasound first. And they said, okay, well, when are we going to schedule the ultrasound? And they said, we're going to have it in 12 months. Well, when would we have the surgery after the ultrasound? Probably another 12 months. Now, make no mistake, she had access. But was she going to live long enough to get to it? That's, that's the future we face in this country. Right. Do we want universal access and, and Medicare for all and uh, all these free services from the government? Uh, you may not get it when you need it. What's the um, what's the broad strategy here for you? I mean, if you if you're looking at um, you know if you take the long view, the next ten, fifteen, twenty years. I mean, the the overall message is you want less government, less third party intrusion, and so forth. But do you see it as a gradual step by step? And this is the first thing that needs to happen, and then the next thing, and then the next thing. And what do you have a sort of a, a vision or a strategy in mind? Maybe it's just my makeup, but I don't, yes, I have a long-term vision, but I don't operate that way because having been in, in turnaround situations, I have weeks and months. And when we're talking about uh, where we are today as a country with healthcare, uh, we have months and a few years. So it's, I have a, a great sense of urgency to change as many minds and to educate as many people as I possibly can and to, to, create a coalition that, that will spread that same message so that we can magnify the voice of both patient and doctor. Right. 
but still, I mean, what, what would be something, you know, in your, in your wish list, in your realistic wish list? You want more people to join uh, cost-sharing ministries and, and uh, sort of disinvest themselves from the insurance system? Or do you want more short-term health insurance, which uh, the Trump administration, administration has seems, to, you know, seems to be uh, uh, promoting? And, you know, it's, it's a, a relative benefit compared to the, uh, the prior situation and that sort of thing. What, yeah. I apologize. I, that's a good question. What I want is this. I want as many choices as possible so that people can have freedom to choose. That's, that's essentially it. Because on one side of the aisle, they want to have a, a system, and, and the ACA is one of them, where they've limited choice to just being insurance. And the cons on the conservative side, it's not much different, to be quite honest, because one thing that I'm constantly going up against is the solution that they're bringing to the table is again insurance centric. We need to have as many uh, options as we possibly can. You know, cost sharing ministries are not for everybody. Medical cost sharing is not for everybody. Short term plans, I'm not even a real big fan of those. I think it's a good option for a lot of people. Uh, and should it be in place? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, the association health plans, great innovation. We need to bring back catastrophic plans i'm not opposed to insurance i just think we use it wrong and um and you see so tell me your your experience has been how long have you been with this um the the texas public policy institute since january 2nd okay so about a year yeah, almost so, yeah uh, almost a year um we we've had sort of um, i mean not it hasn't been really f focused but we've had some updates on what's happened um with the current administration and in generally we, we've seen that it's been positive uh they've been you know granted this primarily and at the level of executive orders and so it may not be permanent and that sort of thing but but certainly there have been motions that you, you've mentioned now um of trying to give people more choice and um and also a promotion of direct primary care you know that sort of thing which is you know all very positive um at the same time, there's a, you know, potentially a fiscal crisis looming. There's a fear that you actually need to reduce choice because you want, I mean, you're going to have the other side who's going to be very, very strongly trying to push for less choice because they want healthy bodies to sort of subsidize, you know, the, the, the big machine, uh, the big single payer system. There's going to be a very strong push. And, um, where do you think the, the vulnerability of the single-payer uh, camp is so that, you know, people will move in the direction that you want to move? Well, let me say this first. With the exception of Bernie Sanders, I don't think any of them believe that a Medicare for All or a single-payer system is a viable option at this, at this time. Uh, I think it is as much a campaign uh, position as repeal and replace was for the Republicans. Okay. Uh, they, they, it's, it's, it's a talking point to rally their base. I, I do believe that the majority of them will go back and try to strengthen the ACA. I, I believe it's very uh, interesting that all of them have taken the position of supporting the Medicare for All uh, plan. From my perspective, that means they have forsaken the ACA. But on the other side of their mouth, they're saying, no, we need to strengthen the ACA. You, they're mutually exclusive. You can't, you can't do both. Right. 
So what's happened to the ACA? Because we, you know, we don't have sort of uh, uh, real-time data on uh, what's happened since uh, Trump has uh, uh, rescinded the, um, uh, you know, the penalty and so forth. What are the numbers? How, how where do you see? Do you have your pulse on what what the trends are? Well, uh, a number of the a number of the insurance CEOs have said that it's it's finally stabilized. Uh, interestingly enough, President Trump has has. Uh, done some good things for the ACA, even though he's supporting uh, the lawsuit that seeks to strike it down. Uh, there's more competition. You see the premiums going down on the ACA exchanges in the states where short-term limited duration plans are selling mm-hmm. because the competition has pushed down, uh, has downward pressure on the premiums. Okay. Imagine that. Okay. So it's not the, necessarily the death spiral uh, scenario that's uh, taking place. The, no, the, no, the health plan are actually doing okay, even with lower premiums. That's correct. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Very. And, and we, we can go back to the very beginning of what we discussed. Why have people left the exchanges? Why are people leaving Medicaid? Because that's exactly what's happening, especially in, in California, which is a Medicaid expansion state. There are more uh, of those that are uninsured that are Medicaid eligible in, in California. And we have, of the, the uninsureds in Texas, for instance, 12% are Medicaid eligible. So they've chosen, for whatever reason, to not be on Medicaid, even though they could be. Right. I mean, because uh, <laughs> who, who wants to have just a, a little plastic card that, uh, that, uh, that nobody accepts or gives you access to, uh, to very little? Um, That's Right. Uh, although, you know, I, I, I suppose you, you get access to the hospital if you, you know, in a case of an emergency. Um, so that, that's um, uh, Anish, any, any thought on? Um... Yeah, no, it, it's, it's been uh, interesting to, to see it. Do you, do you, do you feel, you know, I, part, of the, part of the issue here is that I found, I don't know if you're frustrated by this as well, David, is that you kind of have, you know, the, the, the fox is guarding the hen house in terms of, say, CMS and this large third-party payment system that I think many of us would like to see shrunk at the very least. Um, uh, and, you know, it seems really, really hard um, for the trajectory of that to change regardless of what administration you know, is, is in charge. So, um, Seema Verma, you know, seems to be continuing to travel down a path of, you know, value-based care and, um, paying, you know, pay for performance, you know, the, the initiative recently with, um, regarding, you know, dialysis, et cetera. Again, it's not, you know, it's not unfortunately getting out of the way um, of how one reimburses care. It's just finding different ways to do it, uh, which kind of seems to, I, I, I don't know, it seems like there's little, I find little hope <laughs> sometimes when I look up and I see, regardless of what, you know, who, who, who's in charge, we're still getting basically the same message uh, being passed down. Is that your impression as well? Yes and no. Um, so the way that I would respond to that, and I, and I appreciate the sentiment, I really do. The way I would respond to that is, is by saying this. I think our current healthcare system is irreparable. 
that doesn't mean I'm without hope. I believe that we can create a parallel system that runs alongside of it. And we need to support those doctors and those types of facilities that have taken risks and have done things differently the way they think that it should be done uh, in the best interest of their patient offering affordable care. The more we can see these types of, of models proliferate, the more pressure it'll put on the existing establishment. And that's, that's what I would like to see more of. I'd also like to tell a quick story about CMS. We were talking about direct care. I don't know if you remember, they had a, uh, an initiative uh, supposedly to support direct primary care. But it really wasn't because what they wanted to do is they wanted to pay the membership fee directly to the doctor in exchange for the claims and the records being sent from the physicians. Well, you're not going to get any DPC doctors doing that because they don't function that way. So my, my conversation with them when I was in DC was give the money to the patient, give them a card, load it with enough money to, to, uh, to pay for a, a monthly membership and have it sweep. That's fine. And there was a lot of back and forth and push and pull and they didn't really like that idea. And out of frustration, they said, David, where are we going to get the data? And then I understood it's not about affordable health care. It's about the collection of data and it's about the control of the data because that can be, uh, it's, 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 it's lucrative. Uh, that data is monetized by a lot of people, but just not the patients. Hmm. Do, do you, um, do you, how, how does one, and again, part of the, yeah, part of the issue. Part of the issue is is that you know we we seem to have trouble uh, unifying, um, and part of the trouble unifying relates to the fact that we have a lot of different competing interests. Um, and you know, there's a, certainly a number of physicians um, and physician groups that may not be the greatest actors in, in this space, right? Um, so you know, we've been talking a lot about surprise billing recently, and I mean, there's there's no doubt that folks do use surprise billing and balance billing to um, to take profit out of the system. Um, how, how what do you think the best way of advocating? Uh, you know, as somebody who's got a lot of experience in this stuff, how how do we best advocate in a way that doesn't put position physicians as um, you know, kind of greedy rent seekers, greedy profit seekers that are that are doing this at the expense of expensive patients. So how, how do we uh, rebrand? That- yeah. Or how do we, how do we, you know, given, given all the, all, all, all the bad players, because, because the issue is of course, is that um, if we, um, any moves that we make will result in some winners and losers. Some of those Correct. losers will be uh, physician physicians, for instance, that are currently profiting based off of the current system. Um, so how does well, one, profit- how does one navigate profit. this path? Uh, not, not that, not that yeah, profit okay. is bad. Sorry, <laughs> but, but, but I'm talking about. I'm talking. I just mean, I just mean folks that are are uh, uh, rent seekers. Sure. So meaning there, there's profit that's being uh, gained uh, without necessarily giving real value. Right. Um, and so it seems it seems a very one of the hard parts of unifying physicians is that you know we've created this beast where there's a significant portion of folks that do generate a lot of. Uh, uh, say you know re- revenue without value or you know uh, we, sorry we've created a lot of rent seekers in the system. Okay. The middle. Um, how do we 
yeah how, yeah exactly how do we how do we navigate a path that uh, uh you know that that kind of gets physicians unified um, in, in a way that's a uh, that's a positive to well let me i i think uh, i need to talk to you all about the other thing that uh, i'm currently doing i'm also um one of the founders of an organization called Free to Care. Free to Care is a, a, a patient advocacy and physician advocacy coalition. It's made up of member organizations. Uh, we are about to have our one-year anniversary on November 1st, and uh, we uh, also have a, a conference at that time. Uh, the coalition now, in, in under a year, we have 22 member organizations, 2.3 million individuals that are represented by those organizations and 35,000 practicing physicians. And I think the success behind having, uh, being able to unite and, and mind you, it's a bipartisan group. We have liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans and everybody in between. Well, how would, how would you do that? Um, we have very uh, specific platform issues. And we're very disciplined about sticking with those issues. We don't talk about things outside of them because when they join, they've joined uh, in support of those principles. So that's that's how uh, we've done a good job. And we've been able to get the ear of, of some senators and the White House. And here recently in, in response to um, the president's um, executive order for Medicare, uh, there was a petition that was put out. And after only four days, there were 22,000 signatures by physicians uh, in support of the president and support of the executive order with the exception of uh, one element of that, of that executive order, and that was for the reimbursement parity between physicians and extenders. But it, we've, we've been able to do it, and it's, it's growing by leaps and, leaps and bounds, and I've, I'm proud to be a part of something that is so remarkable. Wonderful. That's great. That's great. David, I'm gonna, uh, I want to go back a little bit to what we were talking about um, uh, earlier about the ACA. Um, again, just because you're sort of an insider, or as, as much of an insider as we've had. Uh, oh, man, don't uh, say that. Uh, show, but <laughs> but <laughs> you, you were saying, because at the same, you know, on the one hand, you said that, you know, premiums have come down. Um, on the other hand, you're thinking that it's, the system is unsustainable and it's right or irreparable. Did the premiums actually go down or did they increase less than expected? Because, you know, frequently in healthcare, when you, when you hear things that are coming down, it's not that they're actually coming down, it's that they're not increasing as much as people had projected. And that's, yeah, do you know exactly that? I hate the term of slowed growth. I think that's ridiculous. No, they've actually, they've actually decreased, especially in those states where they have the short-term plans and the association health plans because, again, because of the competition. Okay. Drives that down. But yes, it's unsustainable because why have why have there why has there been such a departure from the ACA by many people who are who are eligible for the tax credits? Now think about that. They're getting they're getting insurance where they have to pay no part of the premium, yet they're not taking part in that. That doesn't make any sense, right? Yeah, it does because you know what they have a deductible. It's around five thousand dollars. So even though it's and again I'm using air quotes, even though it's free. Uh, they're functionally uninsured because more than 60% of people in this country don't have $1,000 in their savings account. Right. So what are they going to do with a $5,000 deductible? They're going to go to the ER. And that's right. exactly what we're seeing. Okay. 
But but if the premiums have come down, the health insurance company, I mean, there's no uh, imminent threat to the, uh, uh, it seems, to the major health insurance players. I mean, they're still sort of uh, flush with cash and, and doing okay for foreseeable future or despite oh, yeah. despite losing, um, you know, people who, uh, you know, who choose not to have insurance. Look, if, if you just go back and look at the stocks of the major health insurers from 2010 to to current day right the aca was a gift uh, yeah of special, course special interest they made money hand over fist pharmacy 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 benefit managers gpos hospitals insurance companies everybody except for the patient and the doctor right yeah so i mean so they're doing well they're going to stick around for at least you know several more years i mean predictive i mean the, the prediction might be that the status quo will continue for 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 a while the care, the quality of the care will continue to get worse because the experience from the patient's standpoint is getting worse because the care is more fragmented. You have these narrow networks. You have these doctors that are stuck to their electronic health records, you know, that don't talk to each other and the doctors have no time to talk to the patients or to their colleagues and so forth. So, right, the, the, the healthcare experience is getting worse. There's the possibility that... You know, in the meantime, the, the direct care, um, uh, you know, field is, you know, is growing uh, as, as fast as it can. Certainly, direct primary care is doing well. And, um, and so in that sense, I'm, I'm with you that it's, it's sort of hopeful. I mean, that we may want to, because we don't want a total catastrophe. We, you know, if the system collapses completely, then there's a real danger that you know you could have a complete takeover of of healthcare mm -hmm. by the government. On the other hand, if you know there's a status quo, but it's sort of uh, uh, you know the 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 kind of uh, of really the terrible care that people are getting that that incentivizes folks individually to go and seek out free market solutions. Right. You know that that's that would be really I mean what what we can hope for. Um, yes, the employers need to play a bigger part. Patients need to do a better job of, of doing some Right, job. right, right. And the employers, as, as you mentioned, you know, especially the self-funded employers. We had um, uh, Jake Hampton on the show a couple of, you know, uh, a couple of episodes back. And that, you know, could be a very, very interesting development. Do you do anything on that front uh, yourself in your current position? Well, I, I educate uh, mm -hmm. the employers and there, we have several restaurants, uh, very famous ones, uh, one in particular uh, by the name of Rudy's, but it was a family of restaurants. And the gentleman, I heard him testify before the state legislature in Texas, and I, I loved everything he had to say. He said, I've, in, in the history of my company, I've, offer, I've always offered health insurance because I felt like it was the right thing to do. But when the cost of insurance outpaced the cost of my material that I sold in my core business, I knew I had I had to, to stop. I knew something had to change, but he didn't stop. What he did was he tried something new. He tried something innovative and he, he employed direct primary care. He works with, uh, uh, you're familiar with the surgery center of Oklahoma. We have mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a very similar organization in Austin called the Texas free market surgery center. And he, he works with uh, that organization as well. So uh, if the direct primary care says, yes, he's eligible for surgery, this is something that they need. If 
the patient agrees to go to the surgery center, he'll pay for it out of pocket. Right, right. That's terrific. That's uh, that's really, uh, I think, the most hopeful, you know, very, very hopeful trends um, that will happen. You know, again, provided Washington doesn't get on, you know, into a mad rampage of uh, of uh, regulation and takeover of uh, of the healthcare business. And and what you're saying seems like, uh, again, the fact that the ACA is not catastrophically crumbling or or or, or threatened. Uh, in a way, is a positive um, because it's it's going to dampen the enthusiasm for a, a real radical Medicare Medicare for all solution. Uh, well, that do doesn't mean that it, it's. I still believe that it's it's inappropriate for a number of other reasons. Uh, it's unconstitutional, uh, being the biggest. The second, uh, it limits choice in other areas. Sure. We, we, we don't have catastrophic insurance because it's a restriction yeah. by That's the a- ACA. Something else that I, I think is a significant problem of the ACA is that it has a permanent moratorium on the ability of physicians to build hospitals, which is right. uh, restricting the competition uh, against these, these big Correct. mega... Correct. That's so, terrible. Uh, I think it predates, or maybe maybe the ACA solidified it, but it's, it's a really... Uh, it's, it's, um, uh, there, there is the hospital lobby that is uh, preventing, uh, right? That, that was behind that measure, if I if I recall I, correctly. I have a pretty good hunch that's the case. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you're right. We need private, uh, small private hospitals that may, you know, begin with a more limited offering of services, and then you know, over time, grow to complement the outpatient surgery centers, right? And and um, and do so. And do you? Do you see at the state level that, uh, I mean, do you think it's a sort of an economic problem that right now, because, I mean, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but legally somebody could open a hospital, a private hospital. The only problem is that it, 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 they, they wouldn't be able to build Medicare or, you know, any of the ACA, uh, you know, uh, insurance in the traditional way. Well, and they, and they couldn't they couldn't admit their own patients. You can't benefit from, the, from those uh, payors for patients that you admit as a physician. Right, but, yeah. but if, if patient paid privately, you know, I mean, th- there are some conditions that may um, demand, you know, two or three days of hospital stay that don't require, you know, that could potentially be payable on a cash basis. Yeah, uh, if it was all cash, I'm... there's no, there right. wouldn't be. However, I believe that at the state level, which, which is where the license is issued, right. that may be uh, an obstacle, but I just don't know the answer to that. But that's right. something I- Right. Well, very good. Uh, uh, Anish, anything else you'd like to, uh, th- this is, I, I'm, I didn't know whether the conversation would, uh, would leave me uh, hopeful or, or pessimistic, but I think what you're saying is, uh, uh, continues to give me uh, a lot of hope. Uh, good. That um, uh, minds are changing, things are moving in the right direction. Um, as I said, hopefully there's not gonna be an implosion, a catastrophic implosion that is always a danger. And uh, and we'll continue to plug along and and uh, and change minds. And it's it's good to have you on on you know uh, in Washington, uh, sort of uh, telling people that there's you know another way of looking at things and and uh, that health insurance is not healthcare and and it's it's, it's a very dangerous conflation of two things. Uh, without question. And if there's one thing that I can say to your audience is, yeah. uh, please be involved. Call your representatives, call your senators, call your state lawmakers. They want to hear from you. They, they don't understand health care. 
and they may not say that out loud in front of a camera, but they'll, they may say it to you. Uh, but they'll ask for your advice. They'll ask for your situation, for your stories, because it helps them understand uh, what, what they don't now. And they may trust you uh, more than the lobbyists coming into their office because they're there because they're paid to be there. You're, com you're having a conversation with them because they know that you live there every day and you care about what you're doing and you care about your patients. So I would, I would, uh, I would beseech your listeners to, to please, you may think that it's not working, that it uh, is ineffective, but if it's effective once, then it's worth it. Right. I think that's a very good point. Uh, I tend not to do that by virtue of where I live. I mean, <laughs> my representative is Nancy Pelosi. She might, <laughs> she, she might I, don't, I don't know to what extent she'll listen to me. But I think in general, as, as a principle, I think you're correct. And I, my mind has changed on that. I mean, I used to think that, you know, it was completely hopeless, that all we had to do was completely bypass the system and whatnot. But I think the, the last, you know, 18 to 24 months have demonstrated that actually certain good things can happen. I mean, there, there is a role for the legislature's to facilitate more options and and yeah. they can do that and they need to hear that message and so absolutely. so i think you're absolutely right yeah you're absolutely right uh, david where can people follow you you write I, I think you have a lot of great articles on 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 the website of the of your organization do you want to give us a um, um a couple of links i'll put them on the show notes uh your twitter handle uh twitter handle is david balot hc for healthcare uh, I'm pretty active on Twitter. You can go to uh, the uh, foundation's website. That's texaspolicy.com. And if you go to the issues tab, okay. uh, you can uh, click on um, the expert uh, field and look for my name and all of my articles will pop up. And then also you can go to the free to care website, which is free, the number two care.org. And that'll have a listing of all of the member organizations that are physician and patient advocacy groups. Sounds great. Thank you so much for joining us, David. Oh, I had a great time. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at akkadandcoca.com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. akkadandcoca.com.